Hi, I'm Carol Baker, and you're listening to The Northern Report. Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, friends. Welcome to The Northern Report. I'm your host, Sean Burns, and I'm coming right at you from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Here on The Northern Report, I aim to shine a light on emerging and existing Canadian talent, as well as some of the legends we're still lucky to have with us. My guest on today's show is Carol Baker. For many years, Carol Baker was regarded as Canada's queen of country music. Among a long and impressive list of accolades includes 26 Juno nominations with three wins, 15-plus CCMA nods with another handful of victories. Carol is also a member of the Canadian Country Music Hall of Fame and in 2009 was appointed to the Order of Canada. Now for our listeners in your mid-40s or younger, Carol Baker's name maybe doesn't pull the same weight that it does with our parents' generation. Her debut record, Memories of Home, was released on Columbia Records in 1970. Between 1970 and 1992, Carol went on to release 14 studio albums, charted 53 singles on the Canadian RPM Country Tracks charts, including 14 number one hits, many of them from her very own pen. I was eager to hear about Carol's start in country music and her journey to becoming one of the biggest selling and most celebrated Canadian artists. I hope you'll enjoy my chat with Miss Carol Baker. Hi, Sean. How are you? <clears throat> How are you doing? Thank you very much for uh, taking the time to chat with me today. It's really an honor to get the chance to speak with you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for asking. Uh, I'm, I'm always happy to talk <laughs> to people about things, you know, and see how everybody's doing myself. So, yeah. It's good. If we could start out kind of uh, in, the, in the early days, I guess you grew up out there in the Maritimes in, in Nova Scotia. I did. Yeah, in a little fishing village, Port Medway. There's only about, <laughs> when I lived there, maybe 300 people, and, and I don't think there's many more now. Unfortunately, a lot of the people that, are, that were there when I was growing up are not all there anymore. I mean, they, they all moved away, a great majority of them, but still maintain um, ancestral homes that they go back to visit. But a lot of people from all over the world particularly the the United States and Sweden and the UK. And and now it seems like a lot of people from different provinces, all the way from BC, all the way down are moving down to Nova Scotia. It's become, and my little village in particular, become a hotspot for people. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, what, what kind of music was being played around the house when you were a kid in Nova Scotia? Oh, old-fashioned country and western you know, some of it, I guess we could call it downright hillbilly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess that was a popular term for it. Yes, my brother, uh, Ford, and he was the oldest in the family. And um, my sister, Rosemary, and my father, they all worked together kind of in a family kind of band. You know, my sister, Rosemary, sang, played guitar. My brother, Ford, and sang, played guitar. And my dad was a fiddler. So I grew up listening to that music as a young girl, and I, I must admit, I didn't like any of it. I just thought it was absolutely horrible. I I would hear that music constantly, and I, I would run upstairs and hide in my room and <laughs> put the radio on and listen to Murray Kay in the swinging soiree. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the country music did not resonate with you right away. Oh my goodness, it wasn't until after I got married, really, that I I started to appreciate country music. You know what, I, I, when I look back at it, there's something just occurred to me as I'm speaking to you, and I, I told the story I just told you so many times, but what really occurred to me in this moment was the only music I think that I really appreciated way back then was gospel music. I loved to go to church and listen to the hymns and sang along with stuff like that. I really, really loved that. But as far as any kind of commercial kind of music, really wasn't interested in it until the Beatles came along. And so that was my introduction to 
becoming a music fan. And uh, although I, you know, sang some of the stuff myself, playing guitar around the house, Roy Orbison, of course, uh, um, some Everly Brothers stuff, but no country. (laughs) I knew nothing about singing country music. Now, I did a little bit of harmony things with my, my older brother and my sister, but they would be just bits and pieces and chorus parts. So no, no, no real country influence on me at all when I was a young girl. You're a rock and roller. I was. That's why I wrote that song. I'm an old rock and roller. Yeah, I've seen a, I've seen a live <laughs> video of that one for sure. Uh, did, did, did you always uh, want to perform, though? Like, was that something that you were drawn to? Never. Wow, because you seem like you're such a natural. Never entered my mind. I had no desire to be a singer. I was, you know, I was happy just to sit and play my guitar on my hammock down home and uh, sing Beatles songs, like I said, and Everly Brothers. And um, I, I did some Connie Francis, too, now that I think of it. And Brenda Lee, but you know they were considered pop artists, and Roy Orbison, so yeah, and gospel. But other than that, I don't remember singing any country stuff really. So how did that happen? I guess did you not start performing live until you moved to Ontario? That's correct. After I was married, <laughs> and that happened by accident. I had no plans to do that. Um, when John and I. I should go back a little bit to when I was a young girl and my father, he loved music really pretty much any kind of music uh, except opera. He just couldn't <laughs> go that or the bagpipes, even though he's from Nova Scotia. <laughs> he said, the only bagpipes I like are bagpipes with the wind out of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had some really funny sayings. And I remember he used to, buy me every Beatle hit record, the 45s that was coming out, because he worked away from home a lot. And uh, so he he would bring me a 45 home, and I would be so excited. That was his little gift to me every week. And one day he said to me, you know, you know, girl, when you grow up, you'll grow out of that music and into my kind of music, country music. And I guess he was right, because it was on our honeymoon, my honeymoon and my husband John's, we were driving through the United States and you and I both know country music is massively popular in the United States, always was and always will be. And we we didn't know because that we were listening to a country radio station. And all of a sudden, I think we were in Pennsylvania, if I'm not mistaken, a song came on the radio and it was Davis Houston, although we did not know. And it was a song called Almost Persuaded. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I couldn't get over the voice on this man. And I thought, wow, that's the most incredible song, incredible singer. I can't believe this. I said, did you like that, John? That's my husband's name. He said, yeah. He said, we'll keep it on this station the whole time. Then all of a sudden, all of these songs came on, old country, new country, didn't matter what it was, they just kept playing playing it all together, you know. And I said, oh my gosh, this is the kind of music my father listened to. Well, we might as well listen to it. And then as time went on, my father passed away um, not quite six months after I got married, so... When we got home from our our honeymoon, I found out my father only had one to six months to live. So that was pretty devastating, to say the least. So I started missing my roots. And I tried and I'd rack my brain trying to remember songs that my dad sang and my sister Rosemary and my brother Forden. And I would remember some of it. And then I would add words that didn't even belong in the song just so I could complete a song. And so I started singing that. And we'd had house, you know, little house parties, apartment parties. And um, I play my guitar and sing. So one time our friends, we had two other couples that we hung out with. We were Carol and John in one apartment. There was Carol and John in the apartment across the hall from us. <laughs> and to the right of us was Carol and Gary. 
<laughs> so three kills, it was pretty, con- <laughs> you know, confusing at times. So they all were going to go to this bar in Oakville, a place called the Halton Hotel. And I said, well, you know, I can't go. I'm not old enough. You're all old enough, but I'm not. I'm only 19 years old. And he had to be 21. Oh. Yeah. So my okay. girlfriend just said, oh, just smack a whole bunch of makeup on your face and you'll look 21. <laughs> so I did it. And I went down there and we're going in and they never even asked me for ID. So I must have looked old enough. And we were sitting in this bar, you know, I'd never had a drink in my life. Didn't even know what a beer tasted like. And when I tasted it, I gagged. <laughs> it was awful. So then I grew to like it, though. <laughs> <laughs> then all of a sudden I heard this band. Well, band, it was two guys, a basket player and a guitar player. And oh, they, had the, they had a drummer, I think, if I'm not mistaken. They're calling me up on the stage. Oh, I said, what's that? And I said, I'm not going up there. How'd they know? What are they doing? So my friends pushed me up on the stage. And that was um, 1960, end of 1968, I'm going to say, somewhere around there, or beginning of 69. And I asked the band, no, they said, what do you want to sing? I said, well, I don't know any stuff you guys are doing. You don't know any country songs? I said, not the whole way through. But I know one, one, Stand By Your Man, because it was a crossover hit, you know? Yeah. So I sang it, and my goodness gracious, the audience were on their feet. I said, what's going on here? I figured everybody had just playing a gag on me, you know? And then they were yelling more and more and more. And I said to the band, I don't know anymore. Do you know any rock and roll? They said, yes. Yeah. So I started singing Long Tall Sally, <clears throat> Beatles version. <clears throat> Excuse me, my allergies are so bad at this time of year. Roll over Beethoven, all that stuff. So then they asked if I would join the band, come back every Saturday, Friday and Saturday. I said, yeah, okay. How much am I being paid? They said, 15 bucks a night. <laughs> <laughs> the I going said, okay. rate. <laughs> wasn't far from where I lived, you know. Yeah. And after a few weeks, they told me they had to let me go because I wasn't learning any, any country songs, and they were a country band. I said, that's okay. I didn't really, really want to be a singer anyway. And that night, that was my last night, there was a gentleman in the audience whose name was Roger Burke, And I'm saying his name because without this happening, I probably would never have had any kind of career. He asked me if I would like to do a live radio show in Ajax, Ontario, from a place called the Hayloft Jamboree. And I said, you better ask my husband because I don't know where that is and so on and so forth. And John said, yeah. So he took her phone number and he called us back and it was confirmed and then I would go there that that next Sunday and rehearse with the band. The only country song I knew. And <laughs> <laughs> by your man again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that went on for me to start to learn some country songs. And I was invited back several times there. And then there was an, a man in the audience one night. His name was George Petrolia. And he was from Oshawa, Ontario, and asked me if I was interested in recording a record of a song he wrote. I said, no, just not interested at all. This is not something I want. Well, he came back every Sunday for, oh my gosh, it must have been a month until I just said, go talk to my husband, please. Just leave me alone. Then John, my husband, John says, yeah, okay. If it's not going to cost us any money because we don't have any. Yeah. (laughs) So he took George Vitalia, uh gave me the song that he had written. It was only lyrics. And he said, can you put a melody to this? It was a song called Memories of Home. And I said, yeah, I'll try. So he gave me this song, and I never knew anything really about a country melody. So I just kind of <laughs> put a melody to this song that uh, didn't come out sounding too country. 
that we he took us to Thunder Bay and uh, recorded that song in Thunder Bay with Don Grashy at DMG Sound. Um, the guitar player didn't show up, so I ended up playing my old electric Hagstrom guitar. And um, so we had drums, um, me playing electric, a gentleman who was in a rock and roll band playing bass guitar. Both drummer and bass guitars were rock and roll players. My guitar player that I went, that I had taken with me was too nervous to play. So he just ended up playing rhythm. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, um, we had no piano. So Don Grashy, who owned the studio, said, don't worry about it. We'll add a piano afterward. So we recorded everything right there as it was, waiting waiting for the piano to come. And then the piano came and they couldn't play because we weren't doing the standard pitch. So they had to bring a Hammond organ in. Now, just imagine a Hammond <laughs> organ in country music in yeah. 1969 or Whatever. What do I? Yeah. So probably the first one with a Hammond organ. And that was released, that song, in July of 1970. No Canadian content. Did not sound country. But it went on the charts and stayed there. I think somebody said for 23 weeks and peaked at number 14. Oh, boy. And you just went and did the one song up there? Just the only thing I had, just the one song. And they said, do you want to stay to hear the final version, you know, when it's all mixed? I said, no, we're going to Nova Scotia. It's our holidays. We're heading down there. Never heard the song. Didn't know how it ended up. Didn't know what I sounded like even on the record. And about, oh, I would say three months later, I was driving along in my car. And all of a sudden, I heard myself on the radio. I heard that song. I almost ran off the road. I had to pull over to the road and listen. I, I was dumbfounded. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I laughed and cried all at the same time. <laughs> and when I was finished, I said, well, that's the most horrible sounding thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I know this all sounds like fabrication, but it's all absolutely true. No, this is, a, this is a really great story. It's like uh, you didn't have a choice. You were going into show business. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I had a choice. I think it was chosen for me, and and that's where it began, and it went on and on and on and on, and I'm still pinching myself to this day, wondering what really caused all this. Wow. You <laughs> know, I'm not, I'm not familiar with that fella's name, but I, I grew up in Oshawa. Yeah, he was Italian. Yeah, but I, I definitely uh, know Grashy's name, and when I spoke with Cindy Kane, she told me that she went to Thunder Bay to track Don down, uh, and you were the inspiration for that, because uh, she knew she needed someone like Don in her corner to, to help her career grow. So was your connection with Don uh, something that sort of spiraled in, into you having a career in, in, the, in music? Uh, yeah, I, I guess, you know, like Don, he met, he was my mentor, uh, for many, many years. And, uh, I don't even look at, if somebody says to you, who is the most important person in your career? And if somebody can actually point one person out, I say, wow, then you didn't have a lot of people in your life helping you. I never really want to ever say one person was totally responsible because that is not true. I mean, there were so many people from the very beginning, like going in that bar, my girlfriend telling the band and then onto Roger, it goes on and on and on. And then getting my songs to radio and, and every DJ that played a Carol Baker record before there was ever Canadian content and songwriters, musicians, I mean, who do you choose? Producer. I mean, it's just, I can't choose one person other than God. He must have planned this. God must have planned this. <laughs> but Gra- Grashy sort of uh, like got the ball rolling and, and took your record to radio or tried to get it heard? Yes, he did. He did that. He, he had no other artist at that time. He had come back from Los Angeles or wherever it was he was. I mean, he had been 
all over the place and had one sad story after another sad story. And I heard them all that happened to him, you know, over the years. And I think um, when George Petralia sent him me singing, because he recorded me singing, and Don Grashi owed George Petralia a favor. I don't know what the favor was. I've never really asked. Um, and George took me there. I think maybe Don just felt obligated in many ways to help me, uh, to help George rather. And then he asked his partner, what do you think about this girl? And his partner's words, his partner was Chuck Williams. Don told me his partner said, you must be crazy. What do you want to get involved with another girl singer for? You know, they've all been trouble. Why do you want to get involved? And he says, I don't know. I just hear something in her voice. You know, there's just something there and I can't put my finger on it. And um, we recorded um, two albums actually in Thunder Bay. And I, I was not, I, I mean, I'm not going to lie because I don't believe in doing that, but there was not one thing that I recorded that, uh, ever came out of there that I was happy with. Really? I mean, I just thought I was just doing this for everybody else to make everybody else happy. I wasn't doing it for me. It was not bringing me joy. And I'm not going to say it did because it didn't. It wasn't until I went to Nashville in 1973. And I did not want to go there either. I got pregnant in 1973. 19- I think it was, or 73. <laughs> the time those years go together. And Don said, if I take you to Nashville to make a record, to do a recording, would you go? No, I'm, I don't want to go, he said. He said, please don't let me have done all of this work for nothing. Because he did work hard for me, very hard. He said, please just do this one last thing. Uh, I said, we have no songs. He said, well, I'll tell you what. We'll both write a couple songs. So I said, well, I have been writing a song because I thought it was having a boy. So I wrote a song called Little Boy Blue. Don goes, okay, I'll write one about a little baby girl. So if you have a girl, we'll release my song. If you have a boy, we'll release your song. And I had Candace was born August 1973, and it was a little girl. So Ten Little Fingers was released, and it became my first top ten record. It went to number three all across Canada, and it started a string that ended up with my first number one in 1975, which was very controversial at the time because it was recorded in Nashville, written by Conway Twitty, had no Canadian content, was four minutes and 25 seconds long, and I was told nobody would ever play it. And I said, that's okay. If I don't get to record it, I'm not recording anymore. I'm done. (laughs) Put your foot down. I did. I said, this song is going to tell the truth. If radio is just playing me because I'm for Canadian content, then I don't want to be singing. I want them to play me because I like my music. And I said, I love this song. I've been doing it on stage. I changed the words to suit a woman. And I said, place goes nuts every night. That's all I need to know. I said, that tells me people like that song and the way I sing it. So we went to Nashville in 1974, recorded that song. It became number one in 1975 for me. My first gold, my first platinum record And Conway Twitty took me on the road with him. And when he toured alone in Canada, he used to just make a funny joke and says, now I'm going to do a Carol Baker song. (laughs) That started a friendship and a long-lasting friendship. And uh, Mutual Admiration Society, for for me anyway, and Conway. And uh, you changed the lyrics to, I've never been this far before. That's correct. I put it in the first and uh, and he he didn't uh, he didn't take uh, t- you know he didn't take that the wrong way he was supportive. He thought it was brilliant. As a matter of fact, uh, years later when we were on the road um, doing a uh, a tour here in Canada, he said to me, Carol, he said, I want to tell you something. And I said, What? 
He said, I've rewritten the words to Linda on my mind for you. And I said, oh, really? He said, yes. And he gave them to me. And they were written as a woman would sing it. And I tried and I tried. And I just, I said to him, Conway, this is not a Carol Baker song. This is not my range, not my dynamic. This is your song. If an, if if you have another female that is able to do it and has guts enough to do it, go get her. Well, Loretta Lynn ended up putting it on one of her albums, so there you go. <laughs> uh, like, but before you went down to Nashville, were you performing live regularly in Canada? Yeah, I was working in, in, in the bars um, for some time, um, but during my pregnancy time, I took uh, three years off there, almost three. I did very little work there at all. And for the most part in the beginning, I mean, we were just the sidekicks to what everybody was drinking. That's pretty much the way it is when you're a no name in a bar in these little bars. But boy, did I get a lot of entertaining experience in those bars because I said to myself, I'm going to have to do something to get their attention. So I started Basically, I wore a man's jacket kind of thing and pants and a bow tie and um, started singing and moving on the stage like Mick Jagger. <laughs> he was the inspiration. Music. Now, if that doesn't get anybody's attention, nothing will. <laughs> and, you, and you're playing, uh, are you playing six nighters like in the taverns and bars? Six nights and a Saturday afternoon matinee. Wow, so how long did you do that that sort of circuit for, that nitty-gritty? That nitty-gritty for about maybe, I'm going to say, and I'm going to include after when I went back to work, probably till about 1970, the end of 1975. But I also, at that time, started doing some really nice supper clubs that that paid paid much better money than I was getting, and I didn't have to worry about a band because these places all had terrific terrific house bands that I became very good friends with, and um, so I didn't have to worry about anything. I didn't have to work every week because I was making enough money by that time working in those kind of lovely clubs that paid me enough that. I could make as much in two months as I would make in eight months. Right. And you didn't have to worry about paying a band and keeping them on the no, road and stuff thing. like that. I mean, if I came out with a hundred dollars profit after expenses a week on the road, sleeping in hotels that nobody should have to sleep in, um, I was lucky. And I told my manager one day, I'm, my favorite word was, I'm not doing this, or my favorite sentence, I'm not doing this anymore. If I have to continue singing these places, I'm finished, you know. So it would give him the incentive to want to do something else. And it just kept leading somewhere. There was a road and a path, and, and we followed it. That's the only thing I can say. And had a lot of people helping, helping us walk down that path. Right. Were you going all across Canada? Oh, yeah. I toured the UK as well. Um, I started touring the UK, I think it was in 1977. I went and did Wembley Stadium there at a festival with all the big country artists. And, I mean, nobody knew who I was when I went over there. And um, I went on. I think uh, Loretta was on that night. Loretta Lynn Conway was on that night and some others. And um, I can't remember who all, but there were several. And got up the next morning, and my picture was on the front page of the newspapers. <laughs> Little nobody from Canada. Look what you did. That's and it so cool. The whole 50,000 people or so standing on the beach. And I'm not saying this to brag. This is just all historical. So, I mean, yeah, God was working. Hey there again, folks. As we approach the halfway point of today's episode, I'd like to thank you once again for tuning in. You're listening to the Northern Report Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Burns, and our guest today is Carol Baker. 
I'll remind you to follow along with the Northern Report podcast and playlist on Spotify. Subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts. Listen on YouTube, our anchor.fm page, or wherever you find your podcasts. It was a quick ride for Carol, and after a few years of grinding it out in the bars, she soon found herself on some of the biggest stages in Canada and over in the UK. She skyrocketed to the top of the Canadian country music charts, formed friendships with some of Nashville's biggest stars, and earned the respect of her peers and fans alike with her songwriting and performing. Over the course of doing my due diligence, something that continued to pop up was a notable performance by Carol Baker at the 1976 Juno Awards. We'll dig into that and her time as a bona fide country music star. Next. You uh, you start to, to get a, a big string of number ones, I guess, beginning in late 74 into 75. And then uh, I read just rave reviews for your performance at the 1976 Juno Awards. D- did that performance and, and that time really feel like it was a turning point for you? You know something? There's a question that is a very, very unique question and also demands a specific answer. I think that one performance and everything that went wrong with it and how it all happened was um, the number one reason that I went on to have a very successful career. I went there in the afternoon to rehearse, never done anything like that before in my life. There was a huge orchestra. I was the one of the very few people singing live. Everybody else was lip syncing. I was the first country act, first real country act to sing on the Junos. And the Junos had not been live on national television uh, for, and I think, maybe one year before. Maybe that was the first year. I'm not sure. Anyway, <clears throat> There were all these microphones, and my microphone had my name on it. And I was backstage, so hosts and presenters all walked out with their own microphones. When it was time for me to go on, they lost my microphone. And they said to me, we don't know if this mic is on. We don't know what's going to happen. We'll figure it out. If you don't have any sound, don't worry about it. Um, We will figure it out. So I remember standing backstage and looking up toward the heavens. And I said, God, please let me do a good job so I can do something for country music. If I do a good job, they'll put other country acts on the Juno Awards. And that's what it's all about. I never even thought about myself. I was just thinking about country music. I went out on stage. Thank you to God. My, the microphone worked. And well, you you said what happened after that. Charlie Pride was in the audience that night, and I've been told he turned to the head of RCA at the time and said to Ed Preston, if you don't find her, you're crazy because she's going to be gone in no time. So they courted my, my manager, Don Grashy, who's now my manager, as well as my producer at that time, along with other record labels that were after me to sign up and we chose RCA and it was a good relationship. I'm still very, very good friends with Ed Preston who signed me with to RCA records and Barry Hogan, who was promotion manager and A&R manager. So it was meant to be that I was there. That was my home. That's where I was supposed to be. Right. And they are based RCA in Canada or is there some American influence going on there? RCA <clears throat> had a unique way of having a corporate structure. Every country was kind of on its own. So uh, when each country signed you, you had to always meet, of course, in New York. This is what I've been told. And produce record sales, whether it was for country, rock, or whatever. And no particular artist would be singled out. They would just say, this is what country music has sold. And apparently at one of the meetings, one of the head people at RCA in New York said, 
Uh, so this is Canada's country music sales for the year. Um, I want a list of the actual sales of each artist. And apparently when it was done, I'm told this, and I can only go by what I'm told. Most of the sales, a good three quarters or more, were all from mine. So um, I, I had to be told that, of course, because they knew I was getting platinum and gold records and no one else was. So that they were questioning and um, I had I had no problem with it. I just said, go ahead and use my sales for everybody. It doesn't matter to me. They're, we're all family here. I want everybody to be treated equally that's on this label. Don't put me before anybody else. And uh, they did. They were just as good to everybody else as they were to me. And I think... I think that's a wonderful trait for a record company to have. Absolutely. And so in those days, like you'd mentioned that you had done some some songwriting, were you writing a lot of songs and trying to be sure to record yours on your albums? I never ever wrote a song for me to record on my album. I would write the songs. Some I co-wrote with Don Grashy as well. And I would just ask him, what do you think about this song? And he would listen to it. And he would say, what do you think? I would say, well, if they play it, we're lucky. (laughs) (laughs) And number two, some of them were pretty suggestive. Yeah. I mean, they had an I'd never been this far before theme to them. And I I figured out if that worked for me, maybe I should stay in that genre of recording suggestive music uh, for a time being. And it worked. I had 12 number one records in a row and... That record's not been broken yet to this day. And you were writing most of those songs or co-writing? I did. Wow, that's most impressive. Of them, yeah. With the exception of, well, um, the Conway Twitty song, which started it all, of course. I've never been this far before. Ray Griff wrote two number one records for me. And mine were covers. They had been recorded before, but my two versions went to number number one. Um I'm trying to think. Oh, I did a retake of Hooked on a Feeling, which is an old pop song, and had a number one record with that. So, yeah, there were a few, but the majority were either written or co-written by me, which I think is amazing. And then I, like I mentioned, Old Rock and Roller. When I wrote that song, I just, I had it, half of it written at one time and never finished it. And I, I was doing these television shows in Vancouver called Carol Baker's Country Jamboree in the 80s and started songwriting out there with my musical director and I gave him that song and gave him an idea of how I wanted the melody and he changed a few things and he was musical director on Tom Jones television show that he had out at the time and played the song for Tom Jones it was, there was no demo or anything he just played it for him, sang it, my version of the song. And then Tom Jones recorded the song. And as a songwriter, that was quite a feather in my hat to have somebody oh, yeah. like Jones record a song that, that I wrote. So uh, it was, I can't explain it to you. He was like one of my rock and roll idols. So that was amazing for me. And I had some cuts by some artists in Nashville and some a couple of tunes cut in the UK as well that I had written. So I've been lucky as a songwriter as well. How about uh, one drink is one too many and a thousand's not enough? <laughs> Never an interview goes by without that song coming up, you know. That was the B-side of a record. That one uh, that one hits home. Really? Yeah, I, th- I, 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 I really like that one. You wrote that one too? I did. Um. I wrote it, I was singing in one of those kind of bars that I was talking about in my early years. So I would have written that song in about 1971, I'm going to say. And um, I saw a guy, he was sitting in the audience at this bar, and he wasn't drinking. He was drinking coffee. And I thought, wow, that's unusual for a guy to come in a bar and drink coffee. So I went down on intermission and I introduced myself and asked him the question, what are you doing in a bar drinking coffee? 
And he said, well, I used to be a guitar player. And he said, I'm an alcoholic. They just don't go together. He said, every time I played music, I just would get knocked down drunk and um, I would have killed myself eventually. So he said I had to quit playing, but I still love the music. So he said to me, he said, I've learned one thing. One, one is one too many and a hundred's not enough. It's a great line. I went to my room that night. I couldn't get him out of my mind. You know, I just kept thinking about this man and um, picked up my guitar and a paper and a pencil. And I, as I was writing the words, I could hear the melody in my head. But every time I said one is one too many and a hundred's not enough, it didn't sound right. And all of a sudden it was a light bulb went off in my head. Thousand. That sounds so, it's a word of magnitude, thousand. So I changed the hundred. One is one too many and a thousand's not enough. I think I wrote that song in 10 minutes. It was never to be an A side of a record. It was a B side. I ended up with, I, I, I hit record on both sides, the A side and the B side, both number ones. So that's become a signature song for me. One that you've probably had to sing Every night since then. They'll get the same reaction. And you know something, Sean? That song has changed many people's lives. People come to me concert after concert, sobbing after my shows, telling me that that song, that song saved them. Not just from alcoholism, but substance abuse, um, gambling, all kinds of addictions because they could see themselves, even though that was talking about alcohol, they could see themselves as an addict and it saved lives. So it became a um, theme song among Alcoholics Anonymous all over the world, played at many, many meetings. Um, I gave up all writing royalties for that song to be able to be used during those performances and things like that. Um, I yeah, still get radio royalties, but I've never received a royalty because I wanted it to help addiction, and I hope it did. If I never, ever wrote another song in my life, I think that that song was um, inspired, totally inspired. I never thought I could have words like that inside me. I was, knew nothing about alcohol, really. So God must have had a hand in that. I'm certain of it. And some of the best ones are the ones that get written the fastest, too. I believe that. Yeah. I truly do believe that. One Night of Cheating. When I wrote that song, there's another example. I wrote that within about 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Um, I was singing in a, a supper club in Regina, Saskatchewan, a place called The Pump. And I tell this story all the time, you know. And I'm sure people from Winnipeg have heard it many times. Um, and Manitoba, for that matter. A guy came in the uh, the supper club every night of the week, and he had a different woman every night. And on the Saturday night, he had the best look in one of the bunch. <laughs> so I went down, and I said, boy, I don't know what your secret is, but whatever it is, every man would love to have it. You've come in here every night, and you've had a different one every night, and tonight you get the cream of the crop. Oh, the pick of the crop, whatever it was I said. And... Uh, he said, this is my wife. <laughs> she, she got up off that table. She ran out of the place. And he looked at me and said, thank you for ruining my marriage. Oh. And I just sat there dumbfounded. And I, as he's running out the door after her, I thought to myself, I don't think I'm ruined his marriage. He did a good job of it himself. <laughs> no so kidding. I went yeah. to my room that night and I said, there's got to be a country song in this somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> sure is. So I wrote that song. One night of cheating ain't worth the reaping when there's six nights of good crop at home. <laughs> <laughs> That's another great line. <laughs> and it went to number one so fast. It was incredible. Just an incredible uh, way people ate that song up. So in those days, like once you started to find this national success, what does touring look like for you then? Are you are you still performing uh, six nights, but just in nicer clubs and venues? Um, I I 
I actually, to be honest with you, I never did any kind of a dinner club after, um, I want to say, 1978. I started just doing all concerts. So I was I did not work in cl- in bars very long and supper clubs. The last supper club that I worked in uh, as like a, a, a performer, I was the first country artist to perform there. Was the Royal York at the Imperial Room? Oh wow! And I mean, you're talking Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, uh, Judy Garland, people and. Sarah Baker, where do I fit in there? Don't ask me. But I was supposed to be there for a week, and they held me over for the, another for a week. So uh, I, then I realized, hey, you don't have to play in the bars all the time. You can go and do concerts. And that's what my manager and I decided we would do. And they were not full houses in the very beginning, of course, and a lot of them were in arenas because um, there weren't that many concert halls. But I used to work three months at a time, seven, five out of seven days a week. Hard on the voice, let me tell you. Oh, yeah. Um, but these days, I gave up touring in 2009. I said, I'm retiring from touring. So in 2009, I uh, decided I would just do mini tours, maybe go out for a 10 10 days and do seven out of those 10 days. What I did. And then one time I was on tour in Saskatchewan and I, at this time I was actually Manitoba, Saskatchewan and Alberta. And I was doing casinos and I was at uh, Casino Regina and I caught pneumonia. Oh boy. And um, I had to, not seeing for one night. I, I had no voice. I couldn't speak. And then it was a matter of making a decision to cancel the shows. And all the casinos said, no, you're sold out. We want you to come. Your fans love you. So I got on stage and my voice was very raspy, sometimes barely above a whisper. And I explained to them the whole situation and they all just stood up one by one and said, we love you. We're here because of that. Do the best you can. Oh, that's great. And it was just the most beautiful thing. I can't even tell you how much it touched my heart. But having said that, doing that, I did damage my vocal cords. I bruised them. And they've never come back to being 100% of where they were. So I've lowered my key to half a tone to be able to hit some of the high, high sustainable notes. And it's helped me tremendously. But as I age, it gets older too. So I choose very wisely in how I'm going to sing. I do not do it's only make believe anymore because there's a frequency in that song that every time I hit a certain note, I sound just like Janis Joplin, and I love <laughs> Janis Joplin, but I'm a country singer, so it just doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work the same. <laughs> um, it works for me and Bobby McGee, but not for, not for it's only make-believe. So I've removed that one from my, my repertoire, so to speak. But I, I still love it. This COVID has put a big hole in my, my musical life. Uh, the last time I've done a show was uh, a Valentine's show, February of 2019. No, 2020, pardon me. Yeah, last year. Yeah, so I miss it. I didn't realize how much I would really miss it. And it's not just about the money, uh, because the money does, it is good to have, you know. It enables my husband and I to help our family, kids, grandkids at the university and stuff to help them on their way with their lives. lives. Um, but more than anything, I've truly, truly missed performing. So I've bought a church. <laughs> I've bought a church. <laughs> and you get to sing there and, and get that, that, that release. Yes, uh, I, absolutely. But I, I, we can't even get in the church I purchased. <laughs> so I purchased this church in Port Medway, Nova Scotia, where I'm from. 
and it's older than Confederation. Cool. No washrooms, um, no well, no nothing. I mean, it's so old, and um, it's a lot of work. So we've been relying on people to donate, and my fans have been so generous. And so now there's a a society called the Friends of Carol Baker Society, and they are going to uh, construct a Carol Baker Center within part of the church to put my awards and memorabilia in there, sort of my life. Uh, But I've instructed them that they are not to lose the pews. They'll need to be repositioned because I do. I bought the church to save it. I didn't buy the church to glorify myself in any way. But the church has such great history and churches are being sold and torn down and falling down all over the place. So I thought this, maybe I can save one, you know. So hopefully it's, my fans will still continue to be generous and and donate, and um, it will, we'll be able to get it up to where it needs to be, and I'll be able to get in there once COVID's over. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you mentioned uh, you mentioned the television shows. You had the CBC Summer Series, the Carol Baker Jamboree. Um, one that I saw that really kind of stands out to me uh, was, I'm not sure what year, I think maybe the early 80s, and you're down in Nashville, and you're singing with Hank Snow. Oh, that was not one of my jamborees. That was, um, CBC had a series that they called Super Specials. Okay. And I think they went on for maybe a couple of years. Anne Murray used to do a number of them. I think Burton Cummings did a few Super Specials or a couple. I performed on the one that Burton Cummings had. It was done in Winnipeg, actually. Oh, cool. Great fun. I enjoyed it. And they asked if I would do one. I had already done one in Toronto. And they came up with the idea of Carol Baker in Nashville. So it it was an amazing idea. So I went down to Nashville and recorded that super special. I was the first person to do a television special in Nashville from the stage of the Grand Ole Opry, like a Canadian. Yeah. And no one else has done it to this day, I think. And it was just, the ratings were through the roof, but why wouldn't they be? I mean, not just because of me. I mean, I had Hank Snow on there, and I went to his ranch, and we sang together on his ranch. I interviewed him. The Oak Ridge Boys were on that special. Minnie Pearl, Larry Gatlin, and of course, no Carol Baker special would have been complete (laughs) without my friend Conway Twitty, who showed up. And came into the studio, and we re- we recorded a duet of "It's Only Make Believe" there. Right. Yeah. There's videos of that too. It's a. It's great. All that footage. Yeah. I mean, it's. On some of it, I think that people have put on YouTube are things that have been downloaded by television, and some of them are degraded. Yeah. Uh, which which I understand, but I have the great masters here. So. Oh I mean, really? Yes. Oh, that's so, I good. mean, I have really true great quality that I could probably have some of them made did fixed up digital digitally and uh, and use them because they belong they belong to people to look at and and enjoy. I believe. Did you did you know Hank before that special? Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah, you guys had a relationship already. No, well, it it was it was how do I explain it? Um, I was, yes, I did that. That was the first time. Now that I think of that was the first time I met him. And he was wonderful. After that, I went on tour with him, Irving Oil, uh, from the Maritimes, which my father used to work for Irving Oil, uh, building gas stations. He had one of their first gas stations ever. And so they sponsored Hank and I to go on tour of the Maritimes. So I knew him during that tour. And then later on in years, when I was down in Nashville, he invited me to come to do his portion of the Opry as part of the Grand Ole Opry shows that they do. And um, I received an encore there. And you're supposed to do one time and leave the stage, but it went very well. And I received an encore and came back and 
and sang Why Me, Lord, and, and everybody loved that song. Who wouldn't love that song? You oh, know? yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Hank was a um, great guy, and he actually, he came to my show that I was taping at the Grand Ole Opry that night, and he didn't know how to get in the audience. He'd never been in the audience before <laughs> in his life. He only knew how to get backstage. So yeah. he came backstage. He says, Carol, in that deep voice of his, how do I get out there? <laughs> we got someone to show him to his seat. It was funny. <laughs> That's cool. Was, that, was, that, was he someone, you I mean, you must have heard his music growing up out there. Oh, I did. My father used to sing his songs. But I was too much. I was a very young child. He was my dad's age. And so, I mean, I love Hank Snow's music. I love his voice. I think he's one of the greatest vocalists of all time. Great songwriter, too. I don't think he, he's ever got the recognition of the songwriting that he's done, or, or as much as he should, because he was brilliant. Good guitar player, too. And he was born only about 15 miles from where I, was, I grew up. Wow, I didn't realize that. So, I mean, he yeah. he he obviously had had big success throughout the United States. Uh, were, were you performing down there in those days as well? I didn't do very much in the United States because they wanted me to come to Nashville to to live. Oh, they said, if you come to Nashville to live, we'll get this agent to work for you, and you'll have all of this at your disposal, and you know you will become a superstar. I was told all of that. And I refused. I said, I'm not moving. Canada's my country. Other people can go. That's their prerogative, you know. But why did I want to leave Canada? I mean, this country was made me everything I was musically. My fans, uh, the support they gave me and everything, I thought, I can't do that. That would be like turning my back on everything I believed in. And so, no, I refused. And as a result, I, I think among a lot of people in the business aspect of Nashville kind of turned it back on me a little bit. They thought I was snubbing them. I wasn't snubbing them. I was just being true to my heart. And I think we should all be true to our heart. If that means you need to go there, fine. But if you don't want to go there, you shouldn't be forced to. That's my, my opinion anyway. But, you know, I have to say this. I was doing an interview with um, somebody from the Music Express, and he asked that same question, actually, and I told him the truth. And he said, you know something, Carol? When you you look at it, he said, think about all the country artists that have moved to Nashville. Very few of them have achieved the success that they went there to achieve. And I said, it's true, but... They had to go there and try because that's what their heart told them they needed to do. And they would have never been satisfied if they hadn't gone there and tried that. It's something you have to do if that's what your heart tells you to do. But, you know, you're a, a small fish in a very big pond down there from all over the world. So you got to have a lot of goods to succeed, I think. Oh, absolutely. I think, yeah, even even uh, on a smaller level, uh, the bands that play the clubs and stuff, you, you kind of got to do something to stand out or be especially good to, to break through, it seems like, in a very densely populated place like the United States. And you know what I think also, Sean, that you have to be, I think you have to be different. You know, if you if you think about it, look, look at all the, our, our country entertainers of today. I hope I don't get in trouble when I say this, but a lot of them look and sound very much alike. Sometimes I don't even know whom I'm listening to anymore. There's not a whole lot of originality and differential going on uh, among a lot of the different singers and entertainers. So the ones that really, really make it are the ones that set the standard that everybody else starts to follow. And then, but then you, all you are is another can of Campbell's soup. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, I like that. I'm going to steal that one. Well, that's what, to me, that's what it's kind of like. You're, you're being all marketed as a Campbell's product, a can of Campbell's soup. Maybe you got a different variety, but they're telling you it's all about Campbell's. It's not about anything else. So I think a lot of the artists and their originality and the dream that they had is removed from them somewhat when they go 
and are at the hands of a lot of people that maybe don't even understand country music. So in saying that, I mean, are there artists out there today that, that you're enjoying or are you typically listening to music, you know, from the past? No, I, I, I don't listen to music, to be absolutely honest. I, I listen to very little country music. My, my life is filled with family, friends and grandchildren, although not so much this last year and a half. But um, that's my life. And when I go on the road, I love my fans. I answer every fan letter I get. And I'm so busy with all of that. Um, I don't sing at home until I start preparing to go on a tour. I am. I do a lot of ideas. I, got, I must have a hundred thousand. I'm laughing. Not that many. But I have <laughs> at least 300 song titles that I haven't done anything with. Because that's how song starts with me. So I, I don't listen to a lot of country music, but there are some artists that stand out. And I have to say, I really, really mean she's just brilliant. Oh, gosh. Every time I see, I'm not going to mention her name because okay. then it it says I don't like other people. But there's one female that she just brings me to me, my knees when she sings. She's just absolutely amazing. Amazing. That's all I can say. How about uh, the traditional artists from, you know, from even before you, you were making music yourself? Any of the uh, old country music singers that you that you especially love? Um, definitely Conway. And, uh, of course, David Houston, because he's the one that made me start liking country music, was almost persuaded. Uh, Charlie Pride. Oh, my gosh. Charlie, my buddy. I miss him so much. Oh, just a heartbreak. Um, there's there's so many. I mean, there's 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 a lot of them. There's a lot I didn't like too, but I'm <laughs> sure there's a lot that don't like me, and that's okay. That's 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 life. But we all have favorites, you know. We all yeah. have favorites, and uh, I don't like to point any one person out, or or more than one, because I have favorites for different reasons. Maybe I like the way they look. I know that sounds awful, but maybe I like their, the look and their stage presence. Ah, I might like one because of his vocal, his or her vocal. I might like them because of the specific style they sing. So there's all kinds of different reasons for liking an artist. The number one reason, though, if I had to choose, I think, is when an artist sings with feeling, that they're living every lyric, that they're singing, and they don't sing it the same every time. It's just always something in there different that makes you go, oh my goodness, where did that come from? Yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah, you really, really, uh, really believe them when they're singing the song. Yeah, exactly. Do you have any favorite performances or, or songs from your career that, that you know, you still hold in especially high regard? One is One Too Many Will Never Change. That, mm. that to me, I mean, I just, I love to perform it. I don't like to listen to it anymore because... Now I'm listening to Carol Baker, and I'm actually sick of hearing her sing because <laughs> <laughs> I hear her in my head when I'm yeah. on stage, you know, as well sure. as in my heart. So I don't need to hear hear Carol Baker singing anymore. Um, but I think today, when I get on stage, if I'm going to choose a song that I sing probably different every time and fills me in a way that I can't explain. It's just spiritual, a spiritual connection. <clears throat> is in the garden. Just something, and it's a gospel song. It's just, just something about that song uh, that I picture how life is going to be after this life. And I envision it when I'm singing it. And I don't sing it for myself, I don't even sing it for my fans. I feel every night I, when I sing that on stage, I'm singing directly to God. And I think that's, that's what makes it special to me. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to, to speak with you, Carol. I, I appreciate you taking the time to, to take my call today. Well, it's my pleasure. And as you know, I am never lost for words to my... <laughs> God bless you and take care of yourself. You too. Thanks very much. Well, friends, I hope you enjoyed my chat with Carol Baker. Truly a trailblazer, a selfless person, and an inspirational figure. 
I'm so thankful to Carol for taking the time to share her incredible story with us. You can listen to a small sample of Carol Baker's recorded material wherever you stream music for a nominal monthly fee. A captivating performer, there's a nice cross-section of live performance videos from Carol's storied career peppered all over YouTube. Follow along with the Northern Report Spotify playlist to hear music from the folks that I've covered in the Honky Tonk Times column, as well as right here on the podcast. Give us a follow, like, subscribe, a rating, or just share the Northern Report. And thanks so much to everybody that's been doing that so far. Our logo was created by Boots Graham of Boots and the Hoots, Central Alberta's finest honky tonkers. Music on the show today, courtesy of Sean Burns and Lost Country, The Divorcees, and Skinny Dick. From local legends, to regional stars, to the cream of the Canadian crop, you'll find it all here on the Northern Report. Thanks for tuning in, folks. We'll chat later. Hey. Hey, pal, what you got for me? Uh, it's time to go to bed. 24th hour is right about now.